0: Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, Behind the Shield 10, for a one time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorne, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot and they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May, and again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates, and that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick and mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the US. My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 5.11 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. In fact, if you're listening to this in the months of April or May, 5.11 days is coming up. Between May 9th and May 16th, you will get 20% off all gear and apparel. And that applies both online and in-store. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 5.11, who they stand for and who works with them, Listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director Will Ayers. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome back onto the show neurophysiologist Dr. Kate Pate. Now you can hear my first conversation with Kate on episode 694, but in that conversation, we spent so much time on some really pertinent areas of her earlier life that we didn't get to the bulk of her current research. So in this second conversation, we unpack the world of breathing and the nervous system. So we discuss a host of topics from sleep hygiene to using the breath to get in flow state and everything in between. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 750 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So that being said, I welcome back Dr. Kate pate enjoy okay well, i want to say firstly welcome back to the behind the shield podcast last time it's it's i love i love the leading someone through the timeline element of these conversations. And last time we spent so much time in early life, there was so much, you know, to draw from that. And we talked about eating disorders and some of your own personal journeys that we weren't able to cover some of the other topics. So I want to welcome you back and I'm excited to expand on some of the other things that we didn't discuss last time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me back. It's always good to be here and have conversations about these things that are very near and dear to my heart, but also really important to the communities that um, you know, are are part of your audience.
0: So the one area that I've had, you know, guests on speaking about, Dr. Melissa Vranich and Wim Hof and some of these, are the elements of breath work. Now, you know, there's there's such a gamut of philosophies out there from, you know, the the deep, relaxed breathing and the meditation space to the Wim Hof style breathing where you're hyperventilating. So I would just kind of love to open the door of, you know, what are the the um, arenas in the world of breath that you are finding are most beneficial to some of the responders out there?
1: It's a really great question because, you know, we can, I think oftentimes the breath and breath work and breath practices get lumped into the category of um, down-regulating activities or activities that are maybe promoting more of a parasympathetic nervous system state in individuals. And I think that that's really important for those of us who are at Redline very consistently and need, need to remind our nervous system how to down-regulate and um, get out of that stress cycle. But in the same way, the respiratory system can be utilized to promote a sympathetic nervous system state too if that's of need or beneficial to the individual. So for example, what's happening during Wim Hof breathing um, in that particular uh, or that, that I guess, flavor of breathing the rapid um, both forceful inhale and exhale uh, very quick um, uh, type of, of breathing practice will promote a sympathetic nervous system state and actually enhance the immune system, enhance um, the, the, the pathways that are related to your HPA axis and all of that, that essentially primes a system to be able to, it's creating stress. It's, it is a stressor in and of itself on the body. And so you have this stress response, which activates the immune system. And that can be very beneficial. And obviously it's beneficial for Wim Hof breathing and, and, and for him when he's been studied and they look at what is his response to being injected with something called LPS, Uh, lipopolysaccharide which is something that is on um, uh, bacterial cells so you can essentially it it mimics being um, infected with like e coli bacteria for example and when you inject an lps in nearly all organisms you get a massive immune response and um, it it was interesting to see in his case post Breathing when Wim Hof breathing, um, how this how his response was uh, attenuated in um, and what his symptoms were, and how the symptoms were attenuated after being injected with this thing that should cause a very uh, subjective um, experience that is one of great discomfort and uh, you know you feel awful. So it, sympathetic nervous system activation in that scenario is a beneficial response, but for somebody who is chronically stressed, I think the downregulating practices are, are definitely more advantageous in the long-term. And whichever one you practice, so whether it's Wim Hof breathing or that style of breathing um, or something that's more uh, longer exhales and, and slow deep breathing, you're really creating new neural pathways that are being reinforced. So again, the way that the brain works the more you do something, the more hardwired or ingrained that pathway becomes. And if we are moving through life unaware of our breathing, and we are stressed out, and we know that um, we know that emotions are very tightly intertwined with breathing and breath rate, depth of breathing, all of that. Um, if we're going through life unaware of that and we're just reinforcing maybe shallow breathing because we're um, stressed out or breath holding even, uh, or hyperventilation during anxiety, those are the things that are getting reinforced. And so as we start to pay more attention to our breathing and then practice, whether it's that slow, deep breathing or more Wim Hof style, those are the things that start to get more ingrained and um, become easier for us to access. And they can disrupt some of the... um, more, more chronic breath pathways that are linked with mental health conditions like anxiety, for example. So you can disrupt the mental health outcome, um, and the pathway linked to the, the respiratory system by practicing some of these other, um, uh, approaches to breathing. And there's a, there's a ton out there. So we could talk about the different ones and the ones that I recommend, the ones that I've seen be most useful for individuals, Um, If that's helpful. And I apologize if there's a weird noise in the background because my dog is now chewing a bone.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No problem.
1: Sorry (laughs) if there's some background noise here.
0: (laughs) So I want to get to the Wim Hof style, you know, because like you said, it upregulates in one area, but actually that leads then to downregulation post sympathetic response. So I want to kind of unpack that in a minute. But before we do, When you look at the physiology, the sociology, the anthropology, whatever kind of lens you're looking at, how as a species has the man or the woman in the modern society got to the point where what should be a very intrinsic natural thing, which is good breath, how have we found ourselves so far away from that?
1: Man, it's an excellent question. Um well, I think I think there's a couple things going on for us. I think we clearly have a lot of uh, distraction these days. So I think maybe before we had so many forms of technology present, and I don't want to make te- you know the phone necessarily the culprit, although it's a very large culprit these days. This has been going on for uh, a long time prior to that. I think as we have become more distracted in our daily lives. And at what I would say, less embodied. So more disembodied where we're kind of living in our heads and we're, you know, we've got thoughts running through our, our brains all day long and we've got stress and anxiety and we're dealing with difficult problems that we're trying to solve constantly. We're not really in tune with ourselves and we're not in tune with nature, the natural rhythms of nature, the natural rhythms of of our breath. We're spending far less time in nature so i think that there's been a slow um a slow decline in our ability to be in touch with even just our own physiology and and when we are out of touch with that we you know there's again the emotions being very tightly intertwined with um our our breathing when we start to become more stressed and anxious and, um, even depressed, our our breath starts to change. And if we don't pay attention, we do have different patterns that can consistently arise. And we're, I think we're starting to see that, which is again, and there's good news there because we can then use the respiratory system to kind of counteract that and become more aware, become more embodied, return to a better, um, uh, operational state of calm where we're not, uh, we're a little bit more resilient because of that. But I would say that that's probably the primary driver, um, from what I've seen and, and where we, where we are today, uh, with the, you know, t- technology being a major player in, in that space, but I think a lot of other just life stressors in general. Um, yeah, I I would I would say that that's probably my best hypothesis around it.
0: At the beginning of COVID, my dad, who's a a retired veterinary surgeon, um, it's amazing. Apparently, the veterinary community were offering so much information to the human medical community that was just being poo pooed. You know, that you, happens a lot in veterinary medicine, from what I understand. Even though they actually have longer schooling than a human physician. But one of the things that he was talking about extremely early on is like, why is no one talking about the strength of breath through this pandemic where people are having pneumonia and, and these things that they need to physically eject off their airways? And so when you look again, and I, and I bring this up all the time because it's important for us to learn. And I think sadly nothing, it was just discounted. It was like, well, it's done now. Let's move on. Yeah, we made some mistakes, but let's not talk about it. When you look at not, Encouraging people to go outside, to be in nature, to climb hills, to take deep breaths, to have community, to downregulate regulate their nervous system. You know, I, when you look at that particular disease, I would say once again, like in so many examples, the things that people were told to do made them more susceptible on the immune side and made them less able to physically have the strength to even clear the things off their chest as you would if you were outside in nature with daylight on your face and climbing a mountain and working on the respiratory muscles that allowed you to also cough up sputum, phlegm, you know, whatever it is.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely, uh, it's a really important point that you bring up. And um. It's something that is, it's scary because when somebody does have some sort of respiratory illness, even if it's a short-term illness rather than a chronic disease, your uh, sensitivity, so maybe I'll back up a little bit and and describe some respiratory physiology here. But um, one of the biggest uh, terms that we we use as respiratory physiologists in the respiratory community um, to describe discomfort with breathing is a term called dyspnea. And essentially what that means is breathlessness and breathlessness can be divided into different, um, uh, I guess aspects or different facets. So, uh, the work of breathing is one, uh, air hunger is another and chest tightness is another. So there's three different dimensions to what we describe as dyspnea or breath breathlessness. And then in addition, we have what's called an affective component, which is sort of the, how you feel about it. And then this, the, um, um, the other um, somatic based um, component, the sensory component is sort of the magnitude. So, um, for example, you could have somebody say, uh, maybe a really well trained um, person, in, a firefighter, for example, wearing um, complete gear. They might say something like, you know, my breathlessness on a scale of one to 10 is um, maybe a, a seven. And a lot of that is due to. The chest tightness because of this heavy heavy system that you're wearing that's compressing your your thorax, um, and maybe the, the increased work of breathing now because you're breathing against this uh, added load, and there's some some air hunger there. But if they're really well trained, they may say although it's a you know the sensory component is a, a seven out of ten, my anxiety about it or the affective component is like a two because I'm I'm not worried about it. I'm used to this. I've been here before. But if you take somebody who is has never been in that situation and you throw the same gear on them and you tell them to go run up some stairs they might feel uh maybe maybe the sensory component feels like a a seven eight nine to them because they're untrained but then the anxiety around it could be like a 10 you know they may just feel like they're dying and the the fear of suffocation is one of our strongest um reactions as human beings as is actually all all air breathing organisms um we have this hardwired uh Airway protection mechanism that is very reflexive, and the fear of suffocation and our uh, bodily response to that threat is is very very strong. Probably one of the strongest responses we could have. So people will defend that in any way that they can. Um, and this is important as we relate to respiratory diseases or illnesses. So if, if you get COVID or if you have pneumonia or something like that now all of a sudden you're having potentially impaired gas exchange because if you have um, crud in your lungs you're you're you now have an increased barrier for gas exchange but also what can happen is you can have uh, an increased sensation of um, dyspnea or breathlessness and now there's an increase in anxiety about your breathing whereas before and normally um, for anyone who doesn't have any kind of limitation or respiratory disease, we go about our day and we're completely unconscious of our breathing. It's just going on automatically for better or worse, depending on, you know, if it's short and shallow or we're mouth breathing or whatever it might be um, that's going on automatically. And we're really not paying attention to it. And that's a good thing because if we had to focus on every breath that we ever took, we would have zero bandwidth to do anything else in life. But when you start to have respiratory issues And whether it's, again, a short-term illness or a long-term disease, you're feeling every breath, you're conscious about every breath. And usually that means it's not comfortable. So now you have people who are uh, paying attention to their respiratory sensations, which are probably unpleasant. And the affective component of that could be one of anxiety or fear and There are a number of different illnesses and diseases that are um, associated with an enhanced um, sensitivity to respiratory sensations. And actually we we talked about eating disorders before, um, but eating disorders are one one area where there is an enhanced sensitivity to respiratory sensations and an increased affective component. And it could be a clinical marker. Uh, these, These are tools that people could use clinically Um, to separate out populations and understand maybe approaches to helping people. But when we talk about respiratory illnesses, when we are referring to this affective component that people have, again, what I mentioned before, the more we experience something, the more hardwired it becomes. Now these people are um, repeatedly experiencing respiratory sensations that are unpleasant and potentially having a very um, negative affective reaction to that that is becoming reinforced for these individuals. So now what's happening is they, they are worried about their breathing and there's a fear associated with that. And so anything that's going to exacerbate that respiratory f- sensation is going to be avoided. So this, this avoidance of you know, movement, which is what we all need, um regularly whether we have respiratory issues or not that is going to be at the top of the list of things to avoid because that is obviously going to increase somebody's work of breathing and um probably exacerbate whatever sensations they already have but that's going to create a very ingrained pathway so even when this person may recover there could still potentially be a fear there there could be an enhanced sensitivity to these new sensations that they have and it's creating a scenario that Um, really limits, uh, it it limits performance. And when you're talking about it in a sort of an elite athlete or your average athlete, but when you're talking about somebody who's dealing with illness, um, it limits quality of life and it sets somebody on a pathway that's kind of a slippery downward slope, unfortunately. And the only way through that is to rewire those pathways and to retrain your respiratory system. And that it it takes work, it takes practice. And a lot of people don't want to do that. So, you know, unfortunately, they're stuck with this sort of new normal if they don't intervene, if they don't actively try to do something. And that new normal, unfortunately, is going to keep people probably wanting to avoid the things that are good for them, which is movement. And, you know, it it just is something that I think we definitely saw during COVID. And um, it's, it's unfortunate that those types of conversations aren't being had where it's like, hey, here's what's going on for you. Before you get to the point that it, it's so difficult to change, let's continue. For example, like if somebody's in the hospital and they're and they're and they're struggling um, with something, if there's a time to intervene where it's not going to cause more distress, but you could train the respiratory system, like through inspiratory or expiratory muscle muscle strength trainers um, or spirometers. People use those all the time. If people could t- take advantage of the tools that do exist to stay ahead of it, if possible, um, that would be a far better outcome than just saying, you know, hey, good luck when you get out of here, because that's setting, setting someone up for failure when they get home.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, uh, Bas Rutten was on here a couple of times now, and he has the O2 trainer, you know, there's, there's all these different types. His is a, let me see, inspir- Inspiratory trainer, I think um Mm -hmm. and there's no resistance on the expiration you know but but whatever you end up choosing i mean there are these tools you know we we pick up weights for for physical strength and we run for you know like you said the you know the strength of the heart and the lungs but there are these resistance trainers that you can use for breath and Actually, I want to start experimenting. My son is a track athlete now and some of his childhood asthma is just rearing its head once in a while. I'm sure it's based on whatever kind of allergen response he's having at that moment. But, you know, that's a great place. If you are looking to push the 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 parameters a little bit on your physical uh, performance, and we all wear respirators for a living, so I think it's a great tool for us, or, you know, you have a, a little bit of asthma or whatever is going on, why not lean into, like you said, a little resistance training and start strengthening the very muscles that are telling you, hey, for whatever reason, I'm a little bit weak right now. It might be asthma. It might be age. It might be inactivity. But in a world where COVID is just one of numerous diseases that attack the respiratory system, why not have that you know, strengthening of the breathing apparatus conversation as well?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely recommend it for anybody who is wearing any kind of heavy hit, you know, whether it's uh, a ruck or plate carrier, um, fire gear, like whatever that might be where you have added uh, resistance on your chest now that you're having to breathe against, you're increasing your work of breathing by having to lift weights essentially with your respiratory muscles upon every inhale. Now your exhale is passive and and it'll obviously be very easy to exhale with all of that extra uh, resistance on your, your chest. But, um, you know, an inspiratory muscle strength trainer for those populations could be really valuable and, uh, decrease the, the overall, uh, work of breathing because you're strengthening those muscles. And so it is like it's weight training, you know, essentially for those inspiratory muscles. And we need that in those certain, certain circumstances. Um, it doesn't do much for endurance because our respiratory system is already built for endurance. So you can't really do much there, but for strength training, it's, it's very valuable. Um, and actually when I was in grad school, uh, one of my lab mates, um, she was an Olympic swimmer. So she swam for Germany in the Olympics. And now she went to the university of Florida and was a grad student in my lab. And she did a really cool study. They were looking at elite swimmers and they were curious around expiratory muscle strength training because you're exhaling underwater against a resistance. And so they thought, Hey, I wonder if we could apply expiratory muscle strength training to collegiate swimmers and see if that improves performance. So it was a really cool study that they did. And Um, unfortunately, well, it's the data are the data. So it's not really fortunate or unfortunate, but I was hoping to see some really cool results that were like earth shattering. And they did find that um, the uh, expiratory muscle strength training did help a little bit. It didn't necessarily improve overall swim times, but we were talking about elite athletes. So in that population, they're already optimal for the most part. So expiratory muscle strength training didn't really confer a major advantage on their performance. But as you mentioned, anybody who might be starting out at a little bit of a deficit or is working against harder than normal conditions. I think that could be a really valuable tool. Um, And, and, and again, this is something that there's, there's no negative side effect here. So why would you not just try it just to see, you know, and um, I think there are some really cool protocols out there that are pretty easy to remember as well um, for, for doing it. It doesn't take a lot of time. So um, yeah, I'm a big fan.
0: So you touched on, on this for a moment. There's kind of two ways of looking at it. Firstly, as you described the, um, well trained firefighter, we have this resistance. We have this, um, you know, this weight on our chest. We have slight resistance through our mask. Um, but spending time in gear, you down regulate the anxiety to the point where you're able to thrive in a very, very uncomfortable environment. But then conversely, that is a great argument for why it's important to be in gear and keep training because the further the gaps between the the time you were in gear and the next time i would assume and please correct me if i'm wrong there's a greater chance for that anxiety to return again
1: yeah i think it it's it is possible i think that's also um kind of a, a individual basis as well there are some people who tolerate um really unpleasant respiratory sensations well and then there are those who are very very sensitive to them and um there's been a lot of research trying to categorize who's who like who fits into which category and there's um a lot of support around mental health conditions so if you're already starting off with some sort of mental health um uh, struggle uh i mentioned eating disorders but uh anxiety prone uh dealing with depression um usually those are all associated with uh negative more more negative affective states so more of the sort of negative valenced emotions and when you're in um that negative affective state you're more uh aw- you're more aware of your respiratory sensations and you're more likely to categorize them as unpleasant so one way So, so there are people who are kind of, they fall into either category or somewhere along the spectrum just naturally, but certainly it can be trained. But one thing that can be taken advantage of is because our respiratory pattern influences our affective state, our emotional state, our emotional state can also influence our respiratory sensations and the respiratory pattern that we have. And so one trick that i often try to tell people to take advantage of is to promote a positive affective state when they know they're going to be having to perform at some level that is going to elicit respiratory sensations that are maybe going to be uh, unpleasant or where there's going to be breathlessness involved so the hacks for that are the ways to do that i mean for example like at the gym if you're going to go to the gym or if you're going to be outside and you're going to just flat out run as hard as you can and you're you're not going to stop for thirty minutes. You're just going to run. Obviously, that's going to be very challenging, and it's going to be hard for people. Um, but one thing that you can do to promote a po- more positive affective state is listen to music. So music is one way that you can already put yourself in a mood where you're you're ready to deal with whatever that you know respiratory sensation will be, or whatever they um, uh, whatever magnitude they may be, however unpleasant it may be. And so your perception. Of that based off of this mental affective state that you're in is going to be um diminished compared to somebody who's starting off really pessimistic or depressed or already anxious or fearful or angry. There are certain emotions that are going to work against you with uh with regard to how you feel about your respiratory sensations, and then it'll affect performance. So um, if it has been a long time between wearing gear and, and getting back out there, um, rather than being worried about it, it could be something where, you know, you play some music, hype yourself up, whatever you need to do um, to kind of uh, address some of that. And again, I can't tell you, it may not be night and day a difference, you know, between the the two states, but uh, it may be noticeable, noticeable enough that it makes a difference.
0: Well, just hitting on something that you said as well, one of the aha moments I had was there is still a group of men and women that are indoctrinated into the mental health is weakness, you know, don't be a pussy, I'm strong, all this kind of stuff, which over time it will permeate and I think people will kind of have their, their realization moment. But in the meantime, the other way to address mental health in a more proactive way and rather than, oh, you're broken, let's put you back together, is the ability to get into the flow state. So what you've just talked about Talk to me about the the ability to calm the mind through a performance then. So we talk about addressing trauma as far as growing and, and being more resilient from a, a traumatic event. But talk to me, you know, you've, you've still got the same things going on. Maybe you're not accepting that you need to take a mental health path, but maybe we can access you from a performance perspective of what you'll be able to do if you address what will manifest as anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so I think uh, if I'm understanding the question right, that you know, if if somebody is not doesn't want to talk about mental health, they're you know stoic, compartmentalized, whatever, however you want to frame that, but um, you know they they would still benefit from um, these practices that would make them more resilient. So um, we're not t- you know talking about it from a trauma perspective, but just sort of a physiological perspective and using the breath. Is that kind of the the gist of what you're saying
0: yeah i think i didn't i didn't present that question very well one of the guests i had on logan gelbridge who was a i think he was a major league baseball player and he talked about the elements that you need for the flow state and the flow Mm -hmm. state will be optimal when you are you know in a gunfight as a police officer and searching a burning building as a firefighter so he said you need um you know the the thousands of reps which hopefully as we deepen into our career we accumulate you need a high level of stress, which obviously that's there in in our profession, but he said you need that calm mind, but that busy mind, you can never get Mm. into that flow state. So for me, that's the kind of performance side of exactly the same thing, breathwork, meditation, all these things, but if you are not thinking about addressing trauma so much, then we can get you to start looking at the performance element of optimizing your performance as a firefighter or a police officer using basically the same tools.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And breathwork is, I mean, it, it really is one of the most powerful things. And I think a lot of people overlook it, or they kind of just count it as being too hippie or hokey doesn't work. It's too simple to have an impact, but it is literally the most powerful thing that we have at our fingertips that can have an immediate response on our, our, our physiology or the state of our being. And if you can utilize that to calm The mind or cultivate as much calmness as you can in a very high stress situation, you're definitely creating a scenario that is more conducive to being in in a flow state and in high performance and all of that. Um, And everybody's going to have a slightly different protocol that works best for them. Uh, Again, kind of going back to what I mentioned at the very beginning, anything that's going to be more calming and down-regulating for most people will be more likely to have a positive effect. But I'm sure there are people out there who do um, different types of breath practices that are more um, geared towards sympathetic activation that for them feels like it's the appropriate thing to do right before they perform something, Uh, especially if you need to be alert and you don't want to, I mean, obviously you're not going to be falling asleep if this is a high stress situation, but... (laughs) Um, but down-regulating practices typically are going to be more beneficial for people who are kind of spinning out with anxiety. And those could be a, a long-term breath practice um, that you, you know, you, you cultivate or you you do every day, you engage in every day. It could be re- just prior to whatever the activity is. And, and that's the only time you, you utilize it. I would say that the more often you practice these types of things, the better off you'll be, the more natural it'll be for you to sink uh, into that that state that's going to allow you to perform best. So that's definitely a plug for making this more of a regular practice rather than a band-aid of like, shit, I really need it right now. And I'm just going to utilize that, which it works for that. Breath, breath practices work for that. But if you can do a, a more of a regular practice, it's going to be way easier for you to just kind of drop into that appropriate state. Um, Dr. Andrew Huberman mentions he has the one that he tells people about all the time the physiological sigh um which is an inhale followed by another short inhale and then an open mouth exhale um, and the, the inhales through the nose and that happens whether we do it actively or not we we naturally sigh all animals well, Many, and I can't say all, uh, many animals already uh, do this and naturally engage in it. And it's a way to very quickly reset blood gases and also to um, open up the alveoli that might be collapsed due to shallow breathing. And it's something that just feels good. Uh, but you see animals that are stressed out do it pretty frequently and human beings too. And so you can actually just take advantage of that in the moment and do a few rounds of that to kind of calm down and and decrease the stress. Um, There are other ways that you can do that. Just anything that prolongs the exhale. The exhale is always going to be more parasympathetic um, oriented. So anything that you can do while breathing out longer through the exhale is going to help. I often do that when I'm stressed out. I'll kind of purse my lips and blow out through my mouth when I exhale. And it's a friend of mine, a clinical psychologist, she calls it hot soup breath. And it's like you're blowing, blowing on the hot soup, but it feels really good. And I catch myself sometimes when I'm really stressed doing it throughout the day. And I'm like, wow, there I, there I go again. I must be really stressed out because I've, I've done this like exhale like 10 times in the past two minutes. So uh, it's a good indication of kind of how you're doing mentally as well um so that's something else that you can do and then there's also i think I might have mentioned this before on the last podcast, but resonant breathing is something else that is very powerful at activating the parasympathetic nervous system and promoting uh increased heart rate variability, which is a a beneficial um physiological marker so That's something else that you can take advantage of. And um, there is going to be a specific rate for each person that is optimal. But for anybody who doesn't have a heart rate monitor and uh, a little app that can show you your heart rate variability in real time, you can think about it as like a four-second inhale followed by a six-second exhale. And that's usually pretty accurate for most people. Um, But those are ways to – like those are the top three ways that in real time you can absolutely – calm, calm the nervous system down and promote a state where, um, whatever you're doing next or whatever you're doing while you're doing that breath practice is going to be, uh, potentially more optimal and easier to engage in that, in that slip into that flow state.
0: See, when you were talking, I was thinking about the numerous times that I would do conscious breathing on the way to a call. And then when you talked about, um, you know, some people upregulate, some people downregulate, the real kind of aha moment again when i'm thinking about it is we respond to you know in a busy station 10 15 calls a shift so that's a lot of times that those those alarms go off and 80 percent of them 85 are going to be somewhat non-emergent their emergencies you know we're responding to them but are they really you know seconds count someone's going to die kind of calls most of them not so what will okay. happen is you go through okay rolled ankle tummy ache you know difficulty breathing whatever it is but it's non-emergent and then all of a sudden pediatric you know code or you know house fire or you know extrication and now all of a sudden that same response And now you've gone from zero to a hundred simply by what a dispatcher has said and what's popped up on their computer so you've got this absolute massive uptick and i think that's why this is such an important thing once you shift from first to fifth you know in like point whatever of a second your body like This throws a thousand things at you okay now i've got to think about my my pediatric drug calculations and you know have i got the right pads in my aid you know all these different things and so then calming that all those you're going to screw it up thoughts basically that imposter syndrome to get back into being present again you know you've done the training you checked your gear just Mm -hmm. let this call pay out so i think that's what really work for me is like getting getting back into that state as though it was non-emergent even though it's emergent and clearing that mind of all the what-if scenarios that play through your head
1: Mm -hmm. yeah the 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 runaway thought thing is is really challenging for a lot of people to deal with um in that in your profession and, and others as well, I, I just came off of a retreat working with um some active duty uh, special operators and a couple of retired so veteran um folks from the soft community and uh, whether they were active duty still or now moving on and, and retired, you know there's a common theme of just these these runaway thoughts of just my my mind won't stop and there's just so much going on and you know it could be a, a very minimal. Thing that's happening in front of me, but my mind starts to race with it. And then it's, you know, got to, it's making it out to be bigger than it is in some cases. Um, which again, like to your point, obviously it, these are really high stress and high risk situations. And so it makes sense that somebody would go to that high level, like red line. Um, it, it's not like uh, something minimal um and I'm not trying to minimize that but regardless like I guess re- what I'm trying to say is regardless of whether it's something minimal where you have runaway thoughts And then you're planning contingencies or it's something dire and that's an appropriate response, but you can't stop the, that maybe the, the, the fear, the self-doubt, the, the whatever, Um, either scenario, the, the most effective way to cut through that is breath work. It's giving your brain and, and your, you something else to focus on that is quieting the thoughts. And, and if you can't sometimes in my experience with myself, you know, there've been times when breath work doesn't, doesn't quite do it where I'm trying to quiet that, that monkey brain and the doubts and, and whatever is coming at me. Um, and the breath work doesn't, the normal breath work practice doesn't quite do it. I'll end up creating, I'll either hum Or I'll create some sort of word that like a repetitive word or a mantra or something like that, that I'll either say or I'll I'll say it out loud or I'll hum to myself or I'll, you know, say it as I'm exhaling, Um, whatever that is, it's giving you something else to focus on. So if the breathing isn't enough, think about a really pleasant word or hum or, you know, yogis say om, (laughs) you could do whatever, but it's just one more layer, one more tool to add to the practice um, because it is really challenging for some people.
0: So we touched on Wim Hof earlier. Um, I had Wim on the show. I mean, I've, I've tried his cold showers and, and breath practices. And it's interesting because I think there's times where the cold shower thing almost exasperates the, the high stress level that I have. So the down regulation works a lot better. And other days it's the opposite, but talk to me about how stimulating the sympathetic response whether it's with or without cold immersion as well can then lead to a better down regulation in parasympathetic
1: yeah so the way that the way that i understand that to work and the way that i frame it for other people um with that kind of breathing it it essentially create so it does as I mentioned it ramps up your sympathetic nervous system and your HPA axis which you know is part of your normal stress response um your immune system's involved your endocrine systems involved so all of these things come online and in the short term all of that is enhanced and um you can that that in and of itself makes somebody more resilient to further stressors. Their body is essentially online and activated and ready to handle whatever comes at it. So it's a very good thing. Um once that stops, um you know as far as it's not like you slip back into just a parasympathetic dominant state, but your sympathetic nervous system and that sympathetic drive and your stress response does come down afterwards. It's not going to stay elevated. And so that post post period, post activation, um, you are going to be m- slipping back into a more parasympathetic dominant state, but the sympathetic nervous system is still going to be online. There's never, it's never all or nothing. They're both kind of seesawing back and forth. Um, as far as how that promotes maybe a more parasympathetic dominant state regularly throughout life. I don't know what the pathways would be for that. It does seem to happen though. It seems like people who do engage in those practices where they are enhancing their stress response on a regular uh, basis actively, where it's in their control, um, they do seem to be more... um, I guess maybe their default state is more parasympathetic dominated. Um, so I, I don't know what that path could be, but I think maybe there's there's something there with agency and having it be within your control that can be helpful when you, when you have all of this stuff happening to you. And your perspective is that it's out of your control and you're stressed, uh, maybe not on purpose because of everything that's happening that's um that leads to long term depression of all the all of the things that i mentioned with your sympathetic nervous system and your hpa axis and all of that your immune system over time chronically when it's out of your control and and there is no shutting it off all of that stuff gets shut down and so your immune system's impaired your endocrine system has gone to shit you know there's a lot of things that end up happening negatively when you don't turn off that that stress response system um so And that's typically when it's out of your control uh, and you can't mitigate it. But when you're actively uh, engaging in practices that do take advantage of and activate that stress response system in the short term, then when you turn it off, um, yeah, maybe there's some refractory effect there, or maybe it's just because it's in your control and there's a sense of agency. But it does seem to happen where it just promotes more of a parasympathetic dominant state for the people who engage regularly.
0: And there seems to be some element of truth as far as the absence of stress in modern society. I mean, I'm sitting here now in a climate-controlled house with a roof and windows. Um, and the ability to add this acute amount of stress and almost like reset whatever, like you said, whatever the pathways are, reset the body the same way as you would if you got banged out and it was an actual structure fire and you go in and it's hot and you're sweating and you're exhausted – you know, then you're loading hose and you're hydrating. That would be the same kind of thing, an acute response, with you know, an appropriate response. And then in the shower, you know, you'd be tired and hopefully sleep better that night. But the number of times that we get, it's it's a fire. It's, oh, actually, it's not. It's, you know, it, it was a sprinkler on the side of the house, you know, whatever it was. And mm-hmm. so we go from 100 to zero again, and especially dispatch. They sit in a, in yeah. a computer room hearing you know getting all these stress responses but not having any way of actually having a physical manifestation to offload the stress that they just took on so it seems to me that maybe there's a there's a a kind of replication of what a real life stress event would be out in the real world and if you're getting lots of those maybe you don't need to jump in an ice bath and and film it every time (laughs) um (laughs) you know so so that's kind of what i'm pulling from it is is it kind of replicating the very stress that is absent in a lot of our lives
1: It certainly is with with regard to physical stress, Um, I would say, yes, it it definitely is. You know, with with mental stress, I think that we have an overload of that. So we, um, I think we talked about the comfort crisis last time, but, you know, we do live in a very comfortable world these days. And so we don't have a lot of physical stress. For most people, it might be that one hour that they go to the gym and that's it you know, for, for a lot of people. And and some people don't even get that. So the physical stress really is, is lacking, but the mental stress is certainly there. So I think to your point, the physical stressors, um, that, uh, certainly firefighters experience, um, is definitely more in line with what you would see in like a Wim Hof practice where it's an acute thing that's assuming that people can kind of ramp down afterwards um, which I know a lot of people struggle with, you know, you you come off of a call and maybe whether it was good or bad, you know, sometimes it's really hard to come down from that. It's not easy to just turn that off for, for some folks. So, um, if you can, then that sort of peak and then, and then ramp down is, um, pretty healthy and, and we need that. We do need stress in our lives, but, um, the chronic stuff and the inability to control it or, do something about it really is um it it's very uh it's the root of a lot of mental health physical health conditions that are unhelpful so it it's worth if if you, if there's anybody listening to this who's like man that's me I don't really know what to do about that i mean it is probably one of the best things you can do for yourself is figuring out how to um cultivate practices that help you deal with that
0: well the crazy thing as well is our profession is one probably i mean fire service and then like underwater welders and maybe a couple other professions, we're the only ones really that the only air on planet Earth available to us is strapped to our back. Yet there's almost Mm -hmm. no discussion on breath and efficiency and, you know, like you said, breath training. So- um, one of the things that I've personally found, I've had you know a host of people from the breath world, from Brian McKenzie to you know, all kinds of different people, um, and the nose breathing has worked very well for me. I agree. I think it was Chris Hinshaw talked about there's a point where you are having that almost oxygen starvation, and I think you naturally would open your mouth then, but mm-hmm. up to that point… As long as you can, I find that nose breathing. So if I'm climbing stairs to go to a fire, I'm gonna try and keep my mouth closed as much as I can. Now if I gotta force a door and drag someone out, I may be reverting to to open mouth breathing. So what's your what's your whole kind of position on on nasal breathing, when to use it, when not to use it?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm a huge proponent of nasal breathing. I feel like if um anytime you're able to utilize it. I would suggest trying to focus on practicing that. So I know they've got, you know, it used to just be like getting a piece of medical tape, but now they have specific tape that goes over, like some company try to capitalize on this and just you know which is it's great they they saw an opportunity of like hey rather than medical tape let's create like a specific thing just for nasal breathing um so they have this tape out there now that people wear during the day or on a run or at night while they sleep and it's just to remind them because a lot of times we do forget and again we've been breathing a certain way if we've been not really paying attention uh, for decades of our lives and that's been reinforced for better or worse and and I would be willing to bet that many people do breathe through their mouths or breathe shallowly throughout the day or breath hold. Um, and so the more that we can pay attention to that, the more we can practice doing something different. but this tape could be one way that you 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 know potentially utilize that. Um, but there are a lot of benefits to um, to nasal breathing and I would suggest, for folks to try to do it as often as possible and while they're recreating as well, um, you know, or, or training um, there's a lot of opportunity to practice it and see where your thresholds are. And the more that you practice it, the better at it, you'll get, it may be very uncomfortable at first. um, But for people who really struggle with it, if nothing else try to focus on at the very least doing nasal breathing for the inhale. And there's been some research that came out recently. Um, we've known for a while about the um, inspiratory uh, effect on the sympathetic nervous system and then the expiratory effect uh, on the parasympathetic nervous system. But nasal breathing seems to enhance that. And people have been um, trying to understand what those benefits might be. But some of them even come down to, so as, the, as you breathe in, uh, especially through the nose, during nasal breathing. um, There's an enhancement of sympathetic nervous system activity. There's an increased sense of alertness. There's an increased sense of um, uh, attention, attentional awareness, learning, and even potentially memory consolidation. And that's all during the inhale. Now, you're not going to learn a really complicated new concept in one breath in, but if you're focusing on, you know, repeating certain certain parts of that concept as you breathe in over time, you definitely could enhance learning. And that's something that is being actively explored in the respiratory literature uh, and research currently. So that's one aspect. So if nothing else, try to breathe in through the nose. Um, And if you're struggling with both inhale and exhale, um, then, you know, open mouth exhale is okay. But, um, you know, certainly try, try to do it through the nose if you can, but if you can only p- pick one cycle, definitely inhale through the nose. Like when I'm stressed out, like I mentioned before, I'll do an inhale through the nose and then exhale, like through the mouth with the purse lips or whatever that might be. Um, so, you know, if you're doing it for stress purposes, an open mouth exhale sometimes feels really good, but, um, I think it, there's a lot of a lot of benefits. If anybody has read James Nestor's book, Breathe, um, I think it's Breathe or Breath. I can't remember now. <laughs> I think it's Breathe. Breathe, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but he has some some great points in there as well about about nasal breathing. Um, so I try to do it whenever I can, and certainly when I sleep. I've tried the um, uh, medical tape, and I kind of have gotten to the point now where I, I feel pretty well trained that I don't need that but I will catch myself throughout the day. Uh, and even when I'm working out or I'm mouth breathing and I just try to pay attention and, you know, switch it up, but can be, can be challenging.
0: Yeah. No, I had the Patrick McCowan on who I think is one of the, the actual kind of founders of that whole practice. I mean, from, you know, outside of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of yogis and things, but in modern, modern science. Um, and he has as far as rightly, he has a A history of, of some sort of respiratory issue and allergies and all those kind of things. And that was, and it was very, very ill as as a young boy. Um, when I actually started doing it and, and you hit on a good point about gradually, um, kind of leaning into it because you get that oxygen starvation anxiety when you first do it. And so when I was working out, you know, I was able to do it. You know, this intensity okay the next time i can go a little bit more and a little bit more so you do have to train it and then you have allergies and block noses and all these things that will factor in but once i got to the point where i truly could work in it out it's like this incredible limiter like they do on the you know the the business trucks when people you know it can only go to 55 miles an hour that's that's what i feel like it does it keeps you at a a high work rate but not too high and if you look Mm -hmm. at hyperventilation what are the people doing they got their mouth wide open and they're breathing in and out really fast which is i would argue telling you know a lot of people have said this on the show that are experts you're kind of telling the body the same thing as a panic attack you know you're hyperventilating oh this is a sympathetic response and i'm going to keep ramping up if you're Mm -hmm. able to regulate that through your nose until you know the high high intensity you're able to, you know, basically pace. You're able to maintain that good work load for a lot longer without hitting that that metaphorical wall.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's definitely something that uh, I I it, I like for that reason. Um, and I, you know, I mentioned you brought it up, but I, I mentioned before the how we feel about our breathing matters. So a lot of times with nasal breathing, <clears throat> you know, it it could feel like you're breathless or it could feel like you're running out of oxygen or whatever the, you know, however the phrase might go for you, the individual, as you're trying it. But more likely than not, you're physiologically okay. You you probably are not impaired on gas exchange, but it feels like that's what's going on and so and that's a limiter for for all performance whether you're breathing through your nose or, or your mouth a lot of times we will stop movement because we feel like we can't breathe or that we're we have impaired gas exchange or whatever when the truth is physiologically we have more in the tank and when you train that you get better at it and you you do see that that gap in um, you know what's left in the tank, like you can utilize that for performance purposes, but it takes training because we do have these heightened sensitivities to our respiratory sensations for good reason. and if we're dealing with any kind of mental health issue or illness or anything on top, we're going to have even more sensitivity to it. So those things can be rewired and we can desensitize if we practice these things. And nasal breathing is a really great way to start start to build your tolerance for, uncomfortable respiratory sensations. Now don't do it to the point of passing out or anything that's like, you know, dangerous for you, but um, it's certainly a a way to start exploring those edges of discomfort with the respiratory system in a way that's productive. And, um, and it doesn't just help you respiratory speaking. It's, you know, something that can help build resilience and tolerance to a lot of different interoceptive um, sensations. So I think that it's something that's very valuable.
0: Well, I got one more quick question to ask you. I know you're, you're short of time, so I'll keep it quick. Um, there's a, one of the gym owners of the CrossFit gym that I, you know, coach at and train at. She was a swimmer for a long time and and is one of our best athletes. She has this poker face the whole time. She seems to pace really well. Um, so when you look at the, the high level swimmers that you've looked at, what is it about their breath control and maybe overcoming that anxiety that makes them so successful in and out of the pool? And then at the second part of that question, I had I heard someone say, well, nose breathing is is rubbish because swimmers breathe out their nose. So what would be what would be the kind of counter to that as well? Oh,
1: that's a great question. Um f- regarding the latter question or the latter point, um, yes, swimmers breathe. Um in through their mouths and out through their noses potentially. Um, if that's, I think that's maybe the majority of how, how people swim. Um, but they're only doing it while they're swimming. I mean, the rest of the day they're not breathing that way. So I don't think that that, that argument holds water. Uh, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> Um, (laughs) if they were underwater all day and that's how they were breathing, I'd say that there would definitely be some neuroplasticity going on and, uh, a a rewiring of, of their respiratory pattern, uh, and kind of how they're breathing because of that. But I, I don't think it would impact, um, in a major way, uh, as far as what makes them great at that, or maybe the swimmers being more resilient, you know, I, I, I have no idea, um, there's probably a number of factors there that are contributing to that person's ability to handle um, discomfort in a way that's, you know, like I mentioned, the affective component just isn't there for them. So the sensory component, I mean, even even the sensory component may not be as as large in magnitude for that person. So, you know, they may not feel like the respiratory sensations are really that great. And even when they they are, they may just not care. And, and what is that? How, how does that uh, develop, or is there something that's associated with that physiologically speaking? I mean, do they have a larger lung capacity or um, you know, in- increased strength in respiratory muscles? It's so hard to know. Um, but I think that's a it's a really great question because I'm sure a lot of people would love to know what makes those those athletes uh, <laughs> perform like they do. But I would say that they probably do have some sense of diminished sensitivity and not in a bad way, in a good way, that allows them to tolerate more.
0: Beautiful. All right. Well, then for everyone listening, Kate, where are the best places to find you online?
1: Um, I would say these days, probably Instagram. Uh, I'm at docpate, uh, D-O-C period P-A-T-E. And then uh, on LinkedIn as well. And then um, you can email me if you have questions or are curious, um, kate at thisisthewayback.com
0: brilliant well i want to thank you so much for the second conversation i know we're gonna let you go now but uh the last time we had such a an amazing kind of dive into some pretty important conversations that i hadn't had on the show before but i'm glad now that we were able to explore the world of breath and breathing because as i said if there is a profession that really needs to hold this near and dear it would be the fire service so thank you so mm-hmm. much for being so generous with your time yet again
1: yes thank you so much for having me